Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod Side 2, the weekly classic rock magazine-style podcast that comes out every Friday. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, on this episode, I've gone back through my archives for one of my more unusual guests, but it's a powerful interview in many ways. Now, I first did this interview about 10 years ago for the radio station that I worked for. I used to do an awful lot of interviews back then, big names, small names, and sometimes you get one that really stands out for different reasons. Now, this one was with a guy who I'm guessing you won't know unless you live in Beirut. We'll, we'll get to that shortly. His name is Andy Leek, and a brief overview of him and this interview is this. Andy was one of the early members of the band Dexy's Midnight Runners. Now, for my North American listeners, of which there are many, many, believe me, in fact, the combined percentage of American and Canadian listeners to Vintage Rock Pod is 43%. The UK is only 36%, which is crazy, really, when you think of this. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. First of all, it means a lot. So, for the North Americans, Dexy's Midnight Runners, you'll know for Come On Eileen, of course you do. It was a number one hit around the world in 1982, and that was pretty much it as far as Dexys goes for you guys. But in the UK, they were a really big deal. In fact, Come On Eileen was their second number one single. Their first came two years earlier in 1980 with the song Gino. They also had two other top ten hits over here with There There My Dear and Jackie Wilson Said, and four other songs which landed inside the top 20 as well. So as I said, in the UK... They were a big deal. Now, my guest Andy Leake was part of the early band, part of the band when they had that number one with the song Gino. But he was forced out of the band after physical violence from another member of the group. Incredible. He tells me all about it as well in this interview. His story also involves Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant helping him to secure a solo deal, working with Kirsty McCall and Frida from ABBA and writing songs for Tom Jones. It also involves a famous Beatle producer... George Martin, yes, him, making his album as well. And it involves him going to number one in Lebanon without even knowing about it, with a song which became an anthem of peace over there. Like I said, it's one of those interviews with twist after twist, with things you really wouldn't expect from someone that, let's be honest, not one of you will probably have heard of. So I hope you enjoy this. It's well worth a listen. From about 10 years ago, my interview with Andy Leake. The first thing I did was form a punk band when I left school, as everyone did in those days, called mm. the Wailing Cox. And I was on John Peel, did two John Peel sessions and one uh, live in concert session. Yeah. But unfortunately, what happened was uh, the guitarist out of the band, who was my best friend and my greatest musical buddy, you know, and uh, we did everything together. He was killed in a car crash, and it, uh, he was only 23, and uh, it, it blew my mind at the time. I couldn't carry on with anything. I couldn't carry on with my punk band. I, I, I didn't know what to do. and. Then an agent called me and said uh, there was this band called Dexys looking for a keyboard player. They, they weren't famous at the time or anything. Mm. It was still early days for them. And I, I joined them, you know, and uh, that's what I did to kind of get away from the grief uh, uh, as well as, you know, wanting to do it. Yeah. But it, it, it distracted me from, from the, the sadness. And at that sort of time, it was just in the early days of those and, and you actually recorded and played on uh, the Searching Gino, for the Young Soul and, Rebels. and Searching for the Young Soul Rebels. I played on five tracks on Searching for the Young Soul Rebels and I played on Gino and the B-side, Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache. And I did the whole first tour, which was uh, mighty grueling. I can tell you, 45 <laughs> dates and only five days off. <laughs> My word, that's incredible. But, you know, at that age, you can do things that uh, it doesn't bother you so much. 
It must have been the thrill of just playing live and actually being in front of audiences. Oh, it, it, it was a tremendous thrill, and I really got on well, uh, despite being the first to leave the band, which I did for various reasons. I, I really got on well with Kevin Ronan. We travelled around the country together in on the trains. He taught me how to bunk the train. <laughs> he taught me how to be a criminal. <laughs> he, taught, he taught me how to kind of hold an attitude towards life. He was a very charismatic uh, kind of leader of the band, and... Um, he, he was in the catalyst to success, really, more than anybody. I think it's quite interesting you say that, because I think a lot of people's opinions of Kevin is that he's a very prickly character, maybe a little spiky. He, he is, you know, but I can be like that too, so I understand. <laughs> and he's the kind of guy that'll say, what do you mean by that? You know, and you mm. have to explain yourself. But uh, he's all right. He's great when you get to know him. Good stuff. And uh, just touching on the reasons for, for leaving the band, it wasn't exactly on, on happy terms, was it? No, uh, the drummer who I'd had in the Wanning Cox and who I'd brought into Dexys, uh, we had an argument, you know, we, we were, we'd been friends from school since um, we were like 11, so we were really close and uh, we had a big argument and he, he jumped on me and beat me up and uh, he was much bigger than me. I couldn't believe what was happening actually and um, it just freaked me out emotionally and, and otherwise and... Uh, I called the band and said, I can't, I can't come back while he's there. And they said, well, we'll project you from him. But when I went back, he attacked me again. And uh, he just, this whole thing was happening where part of the band was splitting up and becoming the Bureau and the, the other half were considering the new options, you know, and it, it, was, it was a shame, really. And what was the reason behind the attacks? That was a silly thing uh, about money that uh, we we had this van which we owned together and he'd left it on my dad's driveway and uh, my dad had sold it while we were on tour just because he was a piece of junk, to be honest. <laughs> he was an absolute piece of junk and he, he wanted his share of the money and I hadn't got it. I hadn't had any money off my dad. He, in fact, had to pay someone to tow it away, I think. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a silly argument over money, and he probably regrets it as much as me. But we've we've never really known each other since then. Um, so how did it feel then, leaving the band? I mean, what sort of state were you in, in terms of musical career? What did you think of at that stage? Well, uh, I went back to my girlfriend who lived in Glasgow, and what happened was... Uh, my my mother, strangely enough, my mother sent a tape of 15 songs uh, to Beggars Banquet, who'd, who'd also already released one single by me uh, when I left called Move On New Maserati, which was single of the week in sounds and got a bit of airplay. Mm. Strangely enough, you know, after getting this letter from my mom, they, they called me up in Glasgow, my friend's house in Glasgow, because I hadn't even got a phone. And uh, the guy said, oh, Steve Webber here from Beggars Banquet, you know, I just phoned up because we want to offer you a record contract. Well, it's like a dream come true for any artist, you know, yeah. who's not really doing anything. And uh, it gave my life meaning again. And uh, I, I went to London and I recorded in uh, five days, 12 tracks for an album called Midnight Music. Brilliant. And it all kind of got back on track for you then? Well, no, because uh, the record company didn't didn't release Midnight Music because they they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and when they listened to it again years later, when I told them recently, they said we can't understand why we never released that. Because first it was Steve Webber recently, and he's a great bloke, and uh, he just said I can't understand why we never released that because it was great. And uh, anyway, uh, so then uh, I was on a small another small label and did a few things. But eventually, after years of knocking on record company doors. I got a, an interview with Atlantic Records and I was in the office uh, talking to the INR man and, uh, and not, there was a knock on the door and in came this guy looking amazing with amazing blonde hair and <laughs> it was Robert Plant. 
Wow. It sounds a bit unbelievable. It was <laughs> unbelievable. It was surreal. You know, oh my God, here's Robert Plant. So I was introduced to him by the A&R man and he recognised my accent. He started talking to me about Wolves, the football club, you know, <laughs> being as we both Wolves supporters. And he, we were having a laugh together and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm playing my songs. We played him three songs and he just said to the A&R man, oh, this, this stuff's great. You know, you should give this guy a chance. And then he, he dealt with his own business. So he gave me a vote, you know, in the mm. in the A&R in man's mind. I went up in his estimation quite a bit. And uh, then he said, if you had a great management company like Hit and Run Music, we would sign you. And so I went to Hit and Run and said, you know, they say if you sign me, they will. And I played them off against each other a little bit. And <laughs> within three months, I was signed to Atlantic Records and to Hit and Run Music, which was fantastic. Tremendous. And you also... With a little bit of help from Robert Plant. Thanks, Robert. That's <laughs> not a bad help at all, is it? Um, and as well as that, you kind of you wrote songs for other people as well, didn't you, back in the kind of mid-80s? That's right. Uh, I was playing a gig at uh, the Hope and Anchor in Islington, which I think everyone has played a gig there. You know, it's the kind <laughs> of the place you play, isn't it? And um, this girl came up to me at the end of the gig with long red hair and said, oh, you know, you have supreme confidence. I really enjoyed your show. And I went and started having a drink with her. And I thought, oh, this girl's great. And then I, she told me her name was Kirsty McCall. And uh, wow. I wrote a song with her called Waiting, which still has never been released. It's the only Kirsty McCall song left that's never been released. And uh, and she was doing backing vocals a couple of years later with Frida of ABBA. And uh, she recorded a song of mine, uh, having been introduced to it by Kirsty, called uh, Twist in the Dark. And it was it was a hit for me. So that was quite uh, quite a coup. So I wrote a song with Kirsty. Frida, Frida covered a song of mine, and I also wrote a song for Tom Jones. Wow. Excellent. Well, moving on to, to the CD that I have in front of me now. It's uh, Andy Leake's Say Something. It's the deluxe edition. Um, plenty yeah. of new stuff on there. But tell us a little bit more about the album originally. Well, what happened was uh, my record company said, my management company rather, said, who would you like to produce your album now? You've got a record deal and everything. And I said, I don't know much about producers, but I was always into the Beatles. I suppose we couldn't really ask George Martin. <laughs> they were in the kind of office laugh, so there's no point asking him, you know, he won't even listen to your tape. We sent him a tape anyway, he just said, what the hell, you know, we'll try. And uh, so it was quite a good introduction because my management company were Phil Collins' managers, so he would have taken the tape a bit seriously. Mm. He phoned back within 10 days and said, I'm too busy to do an album, but I'll record four tracks, which was amazing. And then we did the four tracks, and he said, oh, I want to do the rest of the album now. (laughs) So I was was honoured to to have him, uh, and uh, it was a great coup for me because, you know, to have someone like George Martin sing your praises and say that you're a great songwriter and uh, all the things that he said about me, and there are a lot uh, of great things he said about me. Uh, so that's that's kind of an incredible thing for him to happen to any artist. It's, it's almost enough, if you know what I mean. Mm. If they're being successful, you can almost go through your life and go, well, I was acclaimed by George Martin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel good. The guy that worked on all the Beatles stuff and he's telling me yeah, I'm great. I mean, you that's not bad and, at all. You know, when you've been a Beatles fan since you were like seven, it's it's like the the thrill of a lifetime, isn't it? Um, but just one more track, the, the title track itself. Um, yes. I was astonished when I when I heard about this. Do you want to tell the story about Beirut? Yes. I do. Uh, I was astonished too because this guy found me up. Um, I can't remember what his second name was. His first name was Halil, you know, one of those Arab guys. Mm. And he was very, very nice and spoke perfect English. He's a DJ in Lebanon and he said, oh, I want to do a remix of your song, Say Something. And I said, Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, so I sent him the CD and all the tracks and everything. And he remixed the whole song as a dance track. 
And uh, he came back on the phone to me and said, what are you thinking? I said, oh, you've done it great, you know, well done. And uh, he says, oh, I hope it will be number one again. <laughs> and there was a pause in my mind. I went, what do you mean again? He says, well, it was number one here in 1989. I said, no, come on, you know, that's not, it wasn't number one. I would have heard about it. And uh, this was like 16 years later or 18 mm. years later or something. It was a long, long, long time. Uh, and uh, he said, no, it really was. And he pointed to me, me to this website uh, on the internet, which has now got a video of Say Something on there as well. And there was just like hundreds of people raving about my song Say Something, all from Lebanon, saying, you know, it was number one and it, it was this the anthem for them, which gave them hope during the Civil War, which is kind of like quite a extreme mm. uh, honour. And uh, so I realised I'd had a number one. I just started to cry, you know, because... Every artist wants a number one, and when you finally realise you had one, it, 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 it can crack you up, especially if it's 16 years old. Indeed, uh, yeah. And the the only sad thing about it was, well, there's a couple of sad things. One, it was the very year that Atlantic Records dropped me, and they didn't even know I was number one. And they said, well, I've called them up, they said, we would never have dropped you if we'd known you were number one <laughs> in Lebanon, even though it's a small country. And... Uh, they don't pay royalties, so that's a bit of a bummer, really. <laughs> yeah, so no, no, no agreement with them for royalties. So all I got was like the honour of it being number one. And it certainly is an honour. But, it, but to... it's 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 great. And George Martin said to me about it. Uh, it's my thirtieth number one, so you know I got to thirty now, thanks to you. A life story and a half, isn't it? I hope you enjoyed that one. It's something a little bit different from the kind of big world famous guests that we usually have on these shows, but it's a great interview nonetheless. Now, if you do like your rock star interviews, then please do go back through the catalogue of episodes. I'm slowly building them here. Some huge names have told me some incredible stories and some more big names to come as well in the next few weeks, including a multi-Grammy Award winner and a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer who played at Woodstock. Both of those to come in the next few episodes. And if you go back through the old episodes as well, sometimes you might see an artist who you don't know much of or you didn't like their music. It's well worth listening to the episodes because some of the stories are phenomenal. I'm just going to leave that one there. So wherever you're listening to this from, make sure that you subscribe or follow the podcast as well. Spread the word as well if you don't mind. Tell someone, even if it's just one more person, about this podcast. And let's see if we can spread the word about Vintage Rock Pod that little bit further. I've had listeners from 82 different countries worldwide now. So if we can tick one more off the list, I'll be very, very happy indeed. Right, now it's the time of the show to hear from our good friend, music journalist and author, Tim Peacock. And it's our favourite time of the week where we get to find out some really quirky stories that are happening in the world of classic rock. And the best way to do that, as always, is to speak to our good friend Tim. Tim, how's things? Hi, Paul. Not so bad, thanks. We've got some sunshine here down in West... Can't complain. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Showing off now. I certainly off. am, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> As we're approaching midsummer and the longest day and all that. So <laughs> you'd be hoping for it at some stage, wouldn't you? <laughs> finally, finally, indeed. Um, so have you got some sunshine stories for us? Yeah, well, I'm glad to say there's, nothing, there's they're all fairly upbeat this evening, actually, I must say. I suppose the obvious place to start maybe would be about um it's the queen's annual honors list uh, over the weekend was just uh, released 
for our um, uh, Vintage Rock pod uh, listeners from outside the UK may not be familiar with this. Every year, the Queen of England basically um, recognises a load of people as in she gives them various titles. Um, these can be like OBEs, mm-hmm. MBEs, different things she gives them. And usually there's a few musicians um, are given the nod for their, their you know, sort of recognised for their contributions to music. And this year is no exception. Um, there's been a few from across the board, um, Lulu and Alison Moyer, and interestingly enough, um, Skin from Skunk and Nancy, an alternative band from the 90s, oh. got them this year. But yeah. from um, Vintage Rock Pod, classic rock fans' point of view, the most interesting ones are Rick Wakeman and Alan Parsons have both been recognised this year, which is quite interesting. So um, the CBEs have gone to both gentlemen. Um, both gentlemen, uh, for Rick Wakeman, obviously people know him for Yes and all kinds of prog rock epics and so forth. And, of course, he worked with David Bowie in the early days as well. But anyway, Wakeman says, quote, it's a mixture of stunned and genuinely very proud. Um, In a strange way, my first thought was, gosh, I wish my mum and dad were here to witness this. But then I realised, of course, my dad would be 105 and my mum would be 103. So the odds were heavily stacked against that. So um, anyway, he went on to say, I'm quite literally stunned and proud is the only way I can describe it. Friends who know me and have been in the business long uh, business know that I didn't expect anything like this. I can only say thank you very much. I feel very honoured and proud. So, yeah, so the classic rock fraternity, certainly. I'm not having a quote from Alan Parsons, but he's also been honoured this year as well. So, and I mean, to be fair, there are two, two gentlemen, I think, who've um, cast their shadow down the decades. Certainly, I mean, obviously, you think of Waitman, but also Alan Parsons, think of his own records but also the fact he was involved in you know, Dark Side of the Moon and the, a lot of the Pink Floyd records and everything is uh, producing and engineering skills as well so certainly I think they're you know whatever you may feel about them there's certainly uh, you know some musicians who've made a big difference over the last 40-50 years so anyway they, they've been recognised as such yeah so I'm quite pleased that Rick Waitman's little comment there was a witty one because he is the funniest man in rock, isn't he? I think uh, even listeners from overseas in the US will will, will know that from like if his uh, Hall of Fame acceptance speech. That was uh, very, very funny indeed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's usually, I mean, you know, he even calls his tours things like the grumpy old mentor and different things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, you can, he's usually reliable for something pretty funny. And as you say, there's a pretty witty, yeah. uh, witty, witty reception from him there this, today. Okay, so moving on this evening, uh, second one we've got tonight for um, fans of uh, Nirvana from S- Seattle and grunge in general. Um, it's an auction story, actually. Actually, a hand-drawn self-portrait by no, um, no lesser luminary than Nirvana's Kurt Cobain has sold for over $280,000 at auction. This is actually quite an interesting story because for one thing about it, it's, it is literally like a hand-drawn scrawl, really, that he, he gave. Uh, he actually did it when Nirvana were, um, in 1992, Nirvana were promoting Nevermind and they were in the Far Eastern leg of the tour. They were actually in Singapore at the time. And he drew, Kurt drew this self-portrait, which was given to, uh, gifted to a guy called Jack Chung, who is a freelance photographer who was, I assume, photographing Nirvana and spending time with them. And, I mean, I've actually seen it myself, Paul. You can see it on, it was sold by an auction house called Julian's, which is uh, J-U-L-I-E-N, Julian's Auctions, of quite a big American auction house. They had a big memorabilia sale. And... Um, 
it is literally just a scroll. It's a typical Kurt type scroll. He's literally like a kind of a stick man with a guitar. And he actually is, he's written by, you know, um, Kurt Cobain Rockstar, and he's deliberately misspelt the Kurt. He spelt it with a K U R D T and Cobain with a K. He often actually did that. I, rem I mean, I remember back in Sounds in the, the early days, he used to spell it. But also, he actually wrote the words, I don't know how to play, and I don't give a hoot next to the drawing of the stick man as well. So <laughs> it's kind of typical, kind of the sort of humor that Kurt would have. Um, the interesting, particularly interesting thing about this story is that the the um, reserve on it was only supposed to be between seven and fourteen thousand pounds, which is okay, fair amounts of money for a lot of people. But I mean, I mean, obviously the bidding for this must have just gone off the roof. It ended up as two hundred eighty-one thousand, which is one hundred ninety-nine thousand in uh, sterling. So I mean, the, the the bidding for that literally must have been just been raising and raising and raising before it finally went. So apparently there was twenty-one bids for it. So. Yeah. There you go. So, anyway, that went this weekend. So there's a, a lucky, um, a lucky uh, new owner for a Kurt Cobain hand-drawn self-portrait from 1992. So, if anyone wants to contact the auction yeah, house, he's probably one of the most iconic kind of figures, isn't he, in in alternative rock music? So yeah, yeah there's fans of his galore, isn't there? So. Not surprised it went for a lot of money, but that is an awful lot of money. For yeah, you, I mean, I, absolutely. Yeah, to be honest with you, really. I mean, I suppose it because it has his own writing on it. It's the equivalent of like the equivalent of a, a signature, like an autograph, I suppose. So you know, it makes a, a but it just does goes to show. I did actually go to visit. There was a um, Kurt Cobain autograph, um, or was it, uh, um, Kurt Cobain exhibition in uh, just outside Dublin a couple of years ago, and I went to that. They even actually had the car that he used to have, but there was all kinds of stuff in there and. And actually, that kind of a hand-drawn self-portrait is actually quite typical of the kind of artwork that he used to to do. So, anyway, as you say, someone—I don't know who the person is—but the uh, the lucky uh, the lucky winner of that, or well, lucky buyer of that one, anyway. So that's something that. Who knows? They may make a profit if they hang on to it for another 10 years. It's difficult Absolutely. to say, isn't it? Absolutely. Now? Okay, yeah. so what else have you got left for us, Tim? And finally tonight, Paul, last story tonight is, uh, this one's actually about a new um, exhibit. It's um, uh, Rush's, uh, the guy who wrote, did a lot of Rush's uh, uh, sleeve artwork, a guy called Hugh Syme. Uh, he's well, a legendary artist. Uh, he's also created iconic artworks for the likes of Dream Theatre, Aerosmith, Queensryche, uh, Iron Maiden, Bon Jovi, Alex, Alice Cooper, the, the list goes on really right across the classic rock spectrum, but he's well known especially as being the Rush artist. So there's a new artist, dedicate, a new exhibition dedicated to his work is opening in Texas in Austin at the AO5 Gallery. And it starts from, there's a VIP event on June 25th. And then it runs from June 26th through to the end of July. Obviously, this is one for Vintage Rock Pod fans in the Lone Star State. It's uh, unless you happen to look out and get a trip over there or something. But um, you can find out more information if you go to the AO, that's letter A, small O, number 5, AO5gallery.com. There's a lot more information um, about what's going on or what will be there. Apparently, it's a kind of a career retrospective, you know. The first thing that he did for Rush 
was the uh, the artwork for the album Caress of Steel from 1975. And then he did a lot of their artwork from then onwards. I mean, um, you know, if I think about Rush, um, I suppose I'd be thinking, you know, the permanent waves cover with the girl with the, like, the huge kind of tidal wave that's on the cover and everything. That's a huge sign. So um, there's actually a quote uh, about his work from late Rush drummer Neil Peart, who was a big fan. He says, for the first time, Hugh and I met we shared a level of communication that would sustain us all through the years of discussing art. Um, uh, yeah, he, he was he, Neil was involved in the Art of Rush book, which came out of Sandwood. He goes on to say, we had the same values and tastes in images and design and simply spoke the same language. So, yeah, apparently also his work has appeared on even... People like Jim McCarthy from the Yardbirds and uh, John John Mellencamp and so forth. So he's really he's done an awful lot of work with different people. So yeah, so he is. Um, if anyone is in the Texas Texas area, the area of Austin area of Texas, from 26th of June to the end of July, go along and see Hugh Symes' ex- exhibit in Texas. Absolutely. So that's what I've got this week. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Tim, as always. And we look forward to finding out what other quirky stuff you've got for us next week. You're very welcome, Paul. Thanks very much. Fantastic stuff from Tim, as always. Now, if you haven't yet, please give Vintage Rock Pod a like or a follow on social media. You'll find me on all the usual channels, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Interact with us on there. Love speaking to you guys. Please join the growing list of VRP VIPs as well. Head to my website, vintagerockpod.com, and you can sign up for free on there. It's always free. Just use the form on the front page, and you'll receive a once-weekly, at most, newsletter talking all about stuff going on in the world of Vintage Rock Pod. But that's it then for this week's Vintage Rock Pod Side 2. Another Side 2 episode is going to be released next Friday with another wide range of guests and stuff involved, while the main show comes out each Monday with big-name interviews. And like I said, we've got multi-Grammy Award winner coming next, followed by a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer who played Woodstock the week after. It's well worth listening to both of those. Until the next episode then, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock... Just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care.